Listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. This is our scripture reading from Ephesians 4, 20 through 24, and 5, 1 through 21. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Our Father in heaven, we return to you what you have first given to us in these tithes, these gifts, and these offerings, and we ask that you would use them in order that the gospel would be proclaimed here and throughout the world in word and in deed. And as we prepare ourselves to sit beneath the teaching of your word, we pray that you, by your spirit, would come and that you would meet us and that you would meet those of us here this morning who don't see a way out. And find themselves despairing. Those who are confused. We pray that you would draw near and meet those of us with relationships in desperate need of repair. Those of us who even in this hour find it difficult to sit still in the midst of our anxiety and our worries. Pray that you would meet those of us who are angry and those of us who are so comfortable that we fail to see how desperately we need you. 
Pray that you would meet those of us who are good and those of us who are bad. Those of us who are hurting and those of us who are happy. Those of us who are convinced and those of us who are unconvinced. Father, our prayer is that you would draw near to us. That you would move towards us now with the wonderful, captivating, glorious love and mercy of Jesus. In whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. This time I'll uh, dismiss the children ages 3 to 6 to Children's Church so you can make your way to the back of the sanctuary. Um, I think when I was making the announcements, I said that, you know, Children's, or not Children's Church, Vacation Bible School, I don't know if it starts Monday or Tuesday, and I realize that makes me look pretty bad, like, I don't know what's going on, but that's true. Um, It's Monday. I I see it. I got it. I got it. See? Um, So anyway, we're back on the same page. I looked at my watch when I read that announcement. It said it was the 6th, and then looked at the bulletin and said it was the 8th. So I don't even know what day it is. Um, But anyway, um, here we are. We read from Ephesians earlier, and um, a year ago now, uh, we were studying through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and uh, we finished half of it. And so this summer, we're going to finish the second half. Um, So Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians, just so you know, it's very easily divided into two halves, um, this letter. In the first half of the letter, Paul is really expounding upon um, and exploring the wonder and the mystery of the gospel how we have an entirely new identity in Jesus through the gospel. Um, And in the second half of the letter to Ephesians, we're told how that same good news, the gospel, is really to give shape to our lives, right? And so we're jumping into that, back into that second half this morning, how the good news comes and shapes our lives, how it gives us a new, and what I'm going to say today a new gospel trajectory for our lives. In the last two chapters of C.S. Lewis's famous book, uh, Mere Christianity, the last two chapters are entitled, Nice People Are New Men, and then the last chapter, The New Men, right? And one thing that Lewis says near the beginning of these chapters is basically that we should expect Christians to be different, Okay? He writes, the world is right to judge Christianity by its results. Okay? See, he is saying, in other words, Christianity, it doesn't mean anything. It has no meaning, right? If it cannot produce results. And the world, so the world is right to expect that the gospel produces real change, if it's true, that it should make a difference. And but what kind of change, right? That's the question. Or, or, or what kind of difference should it make? Um, Lewis writes this. For mere improvement is not redemption. This is on the front of your bulletin, part of it anyway. Um, for mere improvement is not redemption. The redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will, in the end, improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. Now listen to what he says. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. And then he goes on with an illustration. He says, it's not like teaching a horse 
to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Something entirely different. See, it's right to expect that the gospel will produce change. But you, you are wrong if you think that that change is simply better, nicer, more polite, fitter kind of people, right? More improved men and women. Lewis is saying, and Paul is saying in this passage, that the gospel brings about a total change, right? Christianity is about becoming an entirely new person, a new creation. It's about getting a new self. And with a new self comes with it this whole new gospel trajectory for your life. Look, if Lewis, if Lewis was right and Jesus came to produce a new kind of man, a new kind of woman, then the gospel isn't just the ABCs of Christianity. It is absolutely everything. It is the A to Z of the Christian life. You know, this is a huge passage for us to look at with a whole lot in it. But I want you to see in this passage four major themes this morning. And here they are. A new trajectory, a new obedience, a new walk, and a new joy. Okay? New trajectory, new obedience, new walk, and new joy. First, a new trajectory. Now, I included those verses from chapter 4, verse 20 to 24, so that we could really kind of gather a little bit bit of momentum heading into chapter 5, right? And I can't really explain them in detail, but you do need to get a feel. And you need to get a taste for Paul's line of thinking, his thought and his argument here. This is really, really, really important to understand. This is not just semantics. Christianity is very, very, very different from every other religious approach out there. And here's why. Every major world religion is working along the same old trajectory. And it's because every major world religion follows the trajectory of what Paul would call in this passage the old self. Right? And here's how, here's how that old trajectory works. It works like this. If you do, fill in the blank, then you will be. So if you obey enough, then you will be accepted, right? If you perform well enough, then you'll be loved. If you get enlightened, then you'll be free. If you're sincere enough, then you'll be approved. And you see, if you do, then you will be. And right now, some of you are probably thinking, I've been going to church for a long time. And I've identified myself as a Christian for a long time. But this whole, if you do, then you will be, it sounds very, very familiar in my life. Of course it does. (laughs) Of course it does. In one way or another, the old self is always telling you, if you do, then you will be. So the old self will take even Christian elements, right, and pull them into this trajectory And try to fit them into this old trajectory of if you do, then you will be. But that is not Christianity at all. And here's what's very, very different about Christianity. For the first three chapters, the first half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he has been saying, in Jesus, in Jesus, it's his favorite term. 
in Jesus, because of what Jesus has done, he has been saying in those three chapters, you already are free and you cannot become more free than you already are in Jesus. Right? He is saying you already are loved. You already are accepted. You already are approved in Jesus. It's already in the bank. And you cannot, you cannot improve upon that. And nothing can take that away if you believe in Jesus. He lived the life you could not live and died the death you should have died. And nothing can improve upon that. And listen, that creates, this is the argument, that, that creates a totally different, entirely new gospel trajectory. Because Jesus has already given you this new identity. Because you already are free and loved and accepted. Then live like this is what Paul is saying. Notice how Paul says in chapter 4 verse 23. He says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. He is saying there is something so wonderful. There is something so beautiful. There is something so captivating and so glorious that it is meant to grab you in the deepest place of your being. See, it's passive what Paul is saying. He's saying, be renewed. This is not something you can manufacture on your own. Something huge and something glorious has to capture you so much so that you are pulled into a new trajectory. And renewed from the inside out. You have to hear the glorious, beautiful music of the gospel. You have to hear it and you have to get inside its tune, Paul is saying. At the end of this summer, um, my my oldest daughter, Kennedy, and I will be, um, we're going to go to a concert together. And um, I'm warning you now, Kennedy. Dad's going to dance. Um, it, you know, it, I probably won't even intend to do that. Um, it will almost be accidental and it will most definitely look accidental. Um, but, you know, every time I go to a concert, at some point, I catch myself dancing. I didn't intend not dancing. I mean, just kind of moving to the music, right? I mean, it just happens. Thousands of people are there, right? And they're singing along and the, the music is just blaring out of those speakers and the lights are flashing on stage and I can feel that, you know, the, the bass line jumping in my chest, right? And it will happen, not on purpose. I'll catch myself moving to the music, right? I mean, it, it's almost like somehow I'm in the music and the music is in me somehow as well. So what is the music for Paul? The something that pulls you in, right? And captivates you and moves you and sets your life on a new trajectory. It is the radical, totally upside-downness of Christianity. I know upside-downness is not a word. My spell check checked it. But that's what it is. Right? At the end of verse 21, Paul, he just... He just uses the name Jesus, right, without the title Christ attached to it. And all the scholars will point out to you that when Paul does this, when he only mentions the name of Jesus without the title Christ, he is doing that because he wants you to think of Jesus' humanity. He wants you to think about Jesus 
in his flesh, right? When he wants you to think and rethink and find the rhythm and find the music and find the trajectory, why would Jesus ever become a man? So that he could go to the cross in your place, dressed in your sins and mine, to be crucified in our place. Trust me on this. He did not suffer like that to make you nicer and more polite and more improved. He did that to make you new, right? To give you a whole new self, a whole new identity. The world and every major world religion is telling you if you do, then you will be. And I'm telling you, and Paul is telling you, stop living on that trajectory and rethink it. Find the music of the gospel and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You already are loved, accepted and approved, valued and accomplished in him. You see, you have to pound that music into your soul. You have to pound the music of the gospel into your soul so that you can live in this new gospel trajectory. Okay, let's now move on to chapter 5 here. And I want you to see, second, that this new trajectory propels you and me into a new obedience. Okay, English nerds, right? This, some grammar here, right? The word therefore in verse 1, it is a resumptive inferential conjunction. Okay? And what that means is that Paul is saying, because of what we just talked about in the first point, because of what we just talked about in chapter 4, then live like this, right? Then obey like this. And I'm going to take verses... 1 through 14 in one fell swoop to talk about this new obedience. Now, on the one hand, Paul is saying that the gospel trajectory pulls us into a new obedience that is both external and internal, okay? So external obedience, he's talking about the things we do, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, crude, crude joking. Down in verse 11, he talks about the unfruitful works of darkness. So works, you know, or deeds, the things we do. And he's saying the gospel trajectory, right, it pulls you into a new external obedience, a new way of living. But the gospel music, it changes more than just your external obedience. It changes you from the inside out because it gets inside of you and it pulls you in, right? So look at verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater. You know, see, idolatry, right? That, that has to do with what we worship. That has to do with what we desire. That has to do with what is most beautiful to us. And you always serve and you always obey what you worship or what you find most beautiful. Idolatry is anything and everything that you put before God as the chief desire or beauty of your heart. And Paul is saying, yes, the gospel should change your behavior. But the gospel trajectory works on you from the inside out. It gives you true beauty and true delight that produces an obedience that is external and internal. But it's even more than that. Paul envisions a new obedience that is total in its scope. And here's what I mean. In this section of verses, Paul is using as his primary examples uh, in these verses, sexual immorality and greed. You know, he could have talked about, you know, 
lying or dishonoring our parents or stealing or any number of things. But he chose to use sexual immorality and greed as his examples. And I think the reason he chose those particular sins is because he wants to show us how total the scope of this new obedience is. So here's how I want you to think about it. I want you to think about the philosophical and political divide in our country, right? On one end of the spectrum, on one, your left, right? Um, on one end of the spectrum, we have liberal individualism, right? And on the other end of the spectrum, we have traditional conservatism, right? And, and here's what I, I, I want you to think about. See, this, the liberal individualistic side, they seem to care a whole lot about injustice and greed and abuse of power, right? While at the very same time saying, do not tell me what I can and cannot do with my body. Do not tell me how I have to sexually behave, right? But on the other side, on the traditional conservative side, right, we hear a whole lot about family values, and sexual ethics, while at the same time in this camp, a lot of people saying, don't you dare tell me what I can and cannot do with my money, with my position, with my status. It's off limits. See, Paul is saying the gospel trajectory affects every area of your life, right? It should be making you more generous, It should be making you less greedy. It should be making you less selfish. It should be turning you into a servant of others if you're living in line with its trajectory. And at the same time, it should be making you more committed, more faithful, more sexually pure. When the gospel trajectory brings brings obedience externally and internally, right? When it demands and produces obedience in every area of life, When that happens, you don't fit into either camp. You're entirely uncategorizable or whatever. I don't even know how to say that word. You know, you're not traditional or liberal, individualistic or conservative. The gospel trajectory creates a new obedience that's radically different. So different that it is like light shining in the darkness, right? Verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And on he goes to this quote in verse 14. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You know, lots of people have struggled with these verses, and maybe some of you struggle with them too. Because, I mean, if everything that I am learning in Paul's letter to the Ephesians is true... Everything that I'm learning about my, if everything I'm learning about my sinfulness is true, then how can it be possible that Paul would call people like us light? You know, if it's, um, if it's clear night tonight, I, I didn't even check the weather today, but you know, you could go out in your yard and look up at the moon, right? And you will see it glowing in the dark night sky. And it's bright and on a clear night and it's so bright that with the naked eye, you can see it and it's thousands of miles away. Right. And when the moon is full, you can go outside and you can look and you from here, you could you can even see valleys and 
craters and all that kind of different shadows on the face of the moon. When it's shining so brightly. But, you know, of course, the moon does not shine. Right? You learned that in third grade science class. Um, The moon appears to shine. Because it is reflecting the light of the sun. How are you going to exhibit this new obedience? An obedience that is both internal and external. An obedience that is total in every scope of your life, right? Um, You only do it, Paul is saying. By getting in the way of the sun and reflecting the light. You are light, Paul says, in the Lord. Awake and arise and Christ will shine upon you. You are not light in and of yourself, Paul is saying, but only as you face the sun and reflect its light because the gospel isn't the ABCs of the Christian life. It's everything. It's the A to Z. You have to so get in the gospel's way that it shines upon you in order that it would change you from the inside out in every area of your life. Okay, third, a new walk. In verse 15, Paul is saying that the gospel trajectory gives you a new way to walk, right? He's saying not as unwise, but as wise. You see, wisdom is important because most of the decisions you and I make day in and day out don't fall in the category of morality. They fall in the category of wisdom. Most of our decisions are about what is best, right? Not necessarily right or wrong. Verse 16, making the best use of time. How do you make the best choices when morality isn't the deciding factor in your life? What am I talking about? Who to marry, right? How to discipline your kids, how to spend your money, what job to take, where to buy a house. Paul's answer is you make those decisions by wisdom, discerning and understanding what the will of the Lord is, verse 17, when the rules don't apply. He is saying that the gospel creates a new trajectory for the way you walk through life. A couple of weeks ago, I, I went back and I reread C.S. Lewis' book, The Abolition of Man. And it's an absolutely fascinating book where Lewis is talking about education and its goals and all that stuff. And in this book, Lewis wrote, For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality. Okay, so he is saying in the vast history of the world prior to modernity, that was the number one question. Right? How can I conform my soul to an objective, real reality? How can I align my soul with that reality out there? Let me read the the full quote now. For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality. And the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For magic and applied science alike, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes or desires of men. And the solution has always been a technique. I can't get into what he's talking about with magic. But, you know, how many self-help books are out there? I mean, how many self-help videos can you find, you know, on the Internet, right? Aimed at you self-actualizing, right? Giving you the techniques to subdue reality, to conform to your soul. We have come a long, long way, baby, is what, is what Lewis is saying. A long way from what, though, right? A long way from wisdom that is gained, not by jumping, but by walking. 
right? Self-help wants you to skip the long, slow, step-by-step process of walking through knowledge and self-discipline and virtue. Jump over that process with the promise of instant arrival through techniques. You know, a trajectory, right? It's a line, right? You know, it's a path. It's an arc. It's a direction. It's It's not a point that you can jump to. Throughout the Bible, you hear this language over and over again. The language of walking a path, right? Of taking a journey, of running a long race one step at a time, of making a pilgrimage. See, we tend to think that life is measured by the big, dramatic, exciting moments and circumstances of our life. But the Bible says it's not. It is measured by the little steps you and I take every day. Slow, plodding steps that lead either to destruction or to life. That's how the Bible talks about it. Paul is saying the gospel puts you on a path, you know, on this trajectory. You and I have to learn how to trace that trajectory day by day. So what does the story of a king who took on poverty To rescue me, say, about the way I set my budget this month. What does the story of an obedient Lord who suffered in my place say about how I handle rejection in my life? What does the story of a bleeding Savior who died to forgive me say about how I should respond to those who have hurt me? What does the story of a Redeemer who made friends out of his enemies say about who I should be spending my time with. To become wise is a long, slow process of many little daily steps. It is to walk the course of a particular trajectory and to seek to conform your soul to the reality of the gospel. Okay, finally, in verses 18 through 20, I think that Paul is talking about how the gospel trajectory leads us to a new joy, to a, to a new kind of joy, right? James Montgomery Boyce, he wrote that what Paul is doing in these closing verses is contrasting being filled with the Spirit with getting drunk on wine. You know, I think it was probably in my junior high science class um, that I remember my, te- my uh, science teacher talking to us about drugs and chemicals and their effects on the body. And I remember her talking about how some drugs and chemicals act like stimulants. And other drugs and chemicals act like depressants, right? I'm extrapolating some insight here from a guy named Tim Keller. But look, wine and alcohol, they are depressants, according to my science teacher in junior high. And we get real fancy with all this and talk about neuropathways and dopamine and all that good stuff. But the question I want to ask is how is it that depressants like alcohol can make you feel happy? Right? That seems contradictory to me anyway. It's a depressant that makes me happy. Um, here's how they work, right? They block and they numb pain. They let you escape from pain. And so you feel more happy and your inhibitions go down because you are becoming less and less aware of your problems and your pain. But see, the spirit... Paul is saying, does not act like that. The Spirit doesn't make you less aware, but more aware. So he's contrasting these two things. The Spirit gives you a heightened sense 
of reality. And by doing so, Paul is saying, the Spirit fills you with joy. So how in the world is that possible? Right? I mean, if we just said that the reason we feel good when we drink alcohol is because we become less aware, how is this true? And it's because the Spirit's main job is to bring glory to Jesus. Right? The Spirit acts like a spotlight or a floodlight and, and, and casts the light upon Jesus and makes him more real to you. That's how J.I. Packer talks about it. Gives you a heightened sense of the reality of what Jesus has done for you. The kind of joy Paul is talking about here doesn't come, right, when the circumstances of your pain are removed. This joy he is talking about comes in the midst, in the middle of your pain. I was thinking about this this morning. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul talks about how he has been afflicted in every way. These are his words, right? He's been afflicted in every way. He talks about how he has been crushed. How he's been perplexed. He talks about how he's been persecuted. And how he's been struck down. And then he says something absolutely crazy in verse 17 of that chapter. He says, For our light and momentary troubles are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And I want to say, what in the world? (laughs) Persecutions being struck down and crushed. And he says, it's light and it's momentary. Because he is saying this. He is saying the more I fix my eyes on Jesus, the more the Spirit comes and wakes me up to the reality of the gospel, the more I start to say to myself, what were my problems again? This is what, this is what Tim Keller said. I mentioned him earlier. The reason we fail to be obedient and the reason we tend to make foolish decisions is because we are not happy enough with Jesus. And you can see that I'm bringing this full circle now, right? What you and I need is a fountain of joy in the middle of our lives. We need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to pray that the Spirit would reveal to us the beauty and wonder and glory of Jesus. A beauty so captivating and so thrilling that we will become obedient in every area of our lives, internally and externally. A wonder so thrilling that we won't try to skip ahead, but will walk step by step the path of wisdom. Paul says in verses 19 through 20 that when we get this new joy, that only the Spirit can bring by making Jesus more real to us. He says this. When this happens, we will begin addressing each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody to the Lord with all our hearts and giving thanks always. Right? You need to find the rhythm. You need to... Hear the music of the gospel, a music so beautiful, so glorious that at times you will catch yourself singing and making melody and moving to its rhythm. Obeying and walking filled with joy. Why? Because the gospel says you already are free. You already are loved. You already are accepted and approved because of what Jesus has done for you. Now, 
trace this trajectory into your obedience and into your walking and into your joy. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for giving us this letter to the church in Ephesus. We thank you for the argument that Paul makes throughout. We thank you for the unique and radical difference of Christianity. The good news that comes to us and says, we already are free. We already are loved. We already are accepted. And it bids us to come and trace its trajectory throughout our lives into a new obedience, into a new way of walking, into a deeper and more profound joy than we can have in any of life's passing circumstances. Father, we pray for what we just talked about. We pray that Your Spirit would fall upon our hearts and that You would make Jesus more real to us. We pray that Your Gospel would ring truer to us. We pray that we would hear its music more clearly in order that it would be true that Christianity does make a difference. It is judged by its results in a people who are newly obedient internally and externally in every area of life. In a people who trace the wonderful story of the gospel into the mundane things of life in order to be wise. It makes a difference because of all people We have cause for joy. We have cause for singing. We have cause for shouting. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.